Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. On Thursday, Joe Biden accepted the Democratic Party's nomination for president and talked about the need for a new deal, drawing on the spirit of Roosevelt. This is the same Biden that for years was considered a fiscal conservative. And in the New York Times on Friday, in an article titled, We Have Crossed the Line Debt Hawks Warned Us About for Decades, there's a quote from Olivier Blanchard, a senior fellow of the Peterson Institute for International Economics and a former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund. Here's the quote. At this stage, I think nobody is very worried about debt. It's clear that we can probably go where we are going, which is debt ratios above 100% in many countries. And that's not the end of the world, Blanchard said. Now, for those that don't follow these things, the Peterson Institute has been the mecca of debt hawks, warning of the dangers of government debt and demanding draconian austerity policies for years. So why the change of tune and how long will this embrace of Keynesian stimulus last? Now joining us is our friend Thomas Ferguson, a professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Hi there. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be here, uh, even in the middle of a COVID uh, epidemic. Well, let, let's start with Biden. Uh, he's, he's promising this FDR-ish economic style presidency, or at least he kind of hints at that. Uh, is that really what he's proposing? And, and if he is, can he deliver? Uh, the short blunt answer is that the Biden campaign is quite deliberately blurring almost everything it says, because it's having to ride two horses, uh, as it were, at once. Um, and we might as well walk through the Blanchard and others, quote, uh, quotation and comments, and sort of set this uh, discussion up a bit. And the question is about, as you said it, fiscal policy. It's also about monetary policy. Um, and so, Look, let's go back to the political context first, I think, which was there was a powerful movement on the left wing of the Democratic Party. It didn't do as well as it hoped, but it did rather well. And there I would count not only Sanders, but Warren, as I think most of the time, clearly belonging to that. Um but the point to grasp here is that they had lost before the pandemic hit, just before it, in that disastrous sequence, first of South Carolina and then the whole uh, South and Western primaries that uh, in which Biden buried Sanders um, and in which um, the uh, South Carolina uh, Democrats and others were uh, Black Democrats were quite clearly enlisted in, in Congress to beat back the Sanders challenge. Uh, there. Now, in that sense, the establishment of the Democratic Party had the whole ballgame won uh, before the pandemic hit. Then the next thing to sort of grasp is okay, how did the pandemic change this? And there I think the answer is straightforward. The main point, especially of the Sanders campaign, about the importance of Medicare for all, you know, not linked to a job, became overwhelmingly important. So did the general problem of wage rises uh, that you know he is focused on. The Warren, you could see echoes of it in the Warren campaign. I mean, put bluntly, um, most of the main issues of the, especially the Sanders campaign looked pretty good um, in the pandemic. And now you're getting a lot of desperate people, particularly as the U.S. Uh, as the uh, U.S. fell over the fiscal cliff at the end of July. That is the so-called, uh, the, the fiscal cliff here being the drop in spending that is now happening uh, because of the failure to put through uh, another uh, stimulus package. Um, and so you have, if you like, greatly increased need, um, a very urgent situation for enormous numbers of people. 
but it, it, it gets worse than that. And, and then I'm going to come straightforwardly to the Roosevelt analogy uh, in a second. Um, because uh, while a pandemic is going on, you know, the initial impact of that thing was shocking to everybody. And I think I do not think anybody anywhere really grasped what was happening. And uh, even I think it's fair to say American elites and not just American ones were really panicked. Nobody knew how lethal this thing was. You could see that the healthcare systems uh, were way overburdened, especially at the start, uh, that nobody really in the United States had the protective gear they required, and indeed a rather clumsy effort to conceal that by telling people, for example, that masks didn't matter, uh, coming out of even of the mouths of doctors who should have known better and who were shortly to change their tune. That was pretty much, you know, universal, uh, together with campaigns to beat down physicians and nurses who tried to say they were unprepared for. That effort, by the way, continues as the pandemic's not over. Okay, so we're looking at a royal mess. Now, after a while, though, uh, after the big steep drop in the stock market, the Federal Reserve got heavily active supported by, admittedly, legislative changes, which are very important, in particular, uh, the uh, part of the stimulus package that backed up the Fed so it could absorb losses, which it's not normally allowed to do uh, there. And that's, in effect, a Treasury-Federal Reserve combo. Um, Okay, so what's happened then since is quite amazing. You see the rapid cartelization and monopolization of big sectors of the economy in which large firms get lots of money or make lots of money. Now, not all large firms. There are some sectors. Airlines, obviously, one. Tourism, there are others. Uh, Retail, a lot of sort of uh, real uh, mall-type retailers have gone down the tubes. there, There are losses here. But fundamentally... The sectors of the economy that are effectively going to lead the way into the new economy, whether you like it or not, and whether it's wonderful or not, what we might call a financialized information age economy, those the leaders in those are doing extremely well. Um, and indeed, uh, the move online to everywhere uh, that can do it. You know, which is mostly a white collar movement. We've talked about this. You and I did an interview with you know very early on on worker safety. I'm not going to try to repeat that um, there. Um, the uh, this guy, uh, this was really um, the, the monopolization, if you like, speaking loosely. What's really going on is oligopoly. Um, it, it has greatly increased. Now, look in the. First, the Roosevelt in the New Deal actually had a, he did it in two stages, and it wasn't he, that's the point I'll come to. Um, he was pushed along by massive social pressure. But in the first phase of the New Deal, you know, the main recovery initiatives, besides going off gold and telling the Fed, this is actually in Fed Minutes, I've written about this, I've studied the New Deal a lot, and I've been in a lot of archives. I actually famous last words. I know what I'm talking about. An awful lot of people writing about it don't. Um, the, um, you know, in the Federal Reserve minutes for that, uh, for that period, you can actually see a distinction between technical and political adjustments to the money supply, for example. Um, anyway, in the first New Deal, uh, the main package was the National Recovery Administration, which was nothing other than an effort to cartelize the economy. It was a business-led Um, If you don't like it, or even if you do, you call it corporatism. Now, what's effectively happening, and that failed. I mean, and then the second New Deal in 1935 and after made Roosevelt, if you like, immortal. Um, And that's the New Deal when people say they like the New Deal. That's usually the one they... Uh, think they know and love. You know, that's the Wagner Act, the national, that was the National Labor Relations Act, the um, Social Security Act with its, not just the establishment of Social Security, at least, mostly for whites, admittedly, um, and, and uh, but also unemployment compensation. 
um, and a, a series of wage and hour bills, although one of those had been earlier. Um, anyway, and then a move toward free trade, which for now we can just let go. I mean, we, we want to focus here on the way the transition from the first to the second New Deal took place. It was basically an economic, first New Deal was an economic failure. Cardinalization didn't work. Um, and Roosevelt had a turn left as large chunks of the workforce organized. Okay, now contrast the situation you are in right now. I mean, basically the labor movement is at, well, not an all-time low, but a very historic low. I mean, there has been some new organization, but not much, and the sort of big impact uh, of organized labor that was happening in 35 and 36, not really earlier, though there was a wave of strikes under the NRA, you know, it's, there's nothing like that happening right now. Um, and instead, uh, you have effectively a bailout for uh, the super rich. I mean, and particularly the leading sector firms in finance and information technology. Now, they're mostly not taking those bailout loans themselves, but the existence of the Fed there, uh, to people know they can sell the bonds, has enabled the private debt markets to reopen. As far as I can tell, they're really only reopened in the United States uh, on a large scale. Um, so you're looking, in effect, at the corporate stage of the New Deal. That first New Deal is already being accomplished before the elections. This is going to be a fact um, that everybody is going to have to deal with. Now, you, you know, catch the irony there. Uh, even in the midst of the, um, I think it was in the House, uh, a couple of weeks ago, they had the antitrust hearings. And Warren made antitrust a centerpiece of her campaign. And there's an awful lot of writing about uh, antitrust. What's actually happening is pro-trust, a, a massive consolidation. And the largest firms are doing better than ever, to be blunt and short about it. Um, so this is really pretty weird. There's another point of, about, you know, comparisons between the New Deal then and the economy now. The New Deal happened in the middle of a deep business cycle downturn and plunge. I mean, now depression's not just a business cycle downturn, but there was, if you like, a kind of uh, not automatic we know it wasn't automatic, but people sort of thought it was automatic. That is to say, they couldn't control it. Uh, decline in the economy. This is not what you've got here now at all. You're not dealing with a with a sort of a cyclical business cycle downturn or even some vast extension of it. I mean, what happened was an outside intervention. You know, COVID blew down the whole economy. I mean, it, it came, it created both, a, as lots of people have noticed, both a demand shock uh, in the sense that as people lost their jobs, they couldn't buy, and a supply shock. They, ought, they, ought, they couldn't work either. Uh, and you can watch, although people rarely talk about it. It's not in the press much. You know, a fairly sharp rise in food prices, not in prices overall. The food price story, uh, particularly for food consumed at home, it's up a lot, actually. Um, now, uh, this means that, uh, look, let's compare this. Um, in the New Deal, when Roosevelt took office, one great advantage he had, I'm not telling you it was wonderful for everything, but it was an advantage people trying to reform, for example, the financial system, which did see a major reform in the first New Deal, that's the Glass-Steagall Act. And then in the second New Deal, they did the restructuring of the Federal Reserve. But at that point, big finance was flat on its back. Um, in the couple of months before Roosevelt came into office. You know, back then it was in March, not in January. You know, you got people worried right now, how do you go from November to January? Well, they were worrying then because uh, they had to go from November to March. Anyway, in that last month and a half or so, basically all the banks in the United States collapsed and closed. They had to be, they were shut. And when Roosevelt took office, you know, the financial system was at a standstill. Now they rapidly brought it back to life. Um, 
but uh, it was shut. Now, in that situation, not only the prestige, but the actual political power of finance was a good deal uh, less than it would have been if it were sitting there making profits. Right now, though, uh, while you know bank stocks are down a bit, um, the very not only the largest chunks of the economy, but an awful lot of individual uh, shareholders and financial groups, especially private equity and hedge funds, they're making money hand over fist. These people are actually. Uh, to a considerable number are actually ahead of where they were than when the pandemic started. Um, so this now, so what, what I'm trying to tell you is the Biden administration is not coming into power like the Roosevelt administration did with, if you like, finance and indeed big chunks of other business flat on its back. A large chunk of a small business is dead and isn't going to revive, but an awful lot of big businesses are making money hand over fist, and the financial sector is basically doing fine. You got the stock market at a record. You know? uh, I think it was you who remarked to me the other day, well, don't you feel great because Apple's worth, what is it, $2 trillion now? Mm, well, you know, if you're out of work, uh, maybe you don't feel so great. So we're looking here, in other words, where the power of ordinary people has been sinking fast. Um, the major political movement uh, had failed before the pandemic. And uh, I think it's fair to say that while there are lots and lots of wildcat strikes, enormous numbers, because people are re and people are getting desperate, and you clearly have a hunger problem. Thus far, you haven't seen anything like a sort of uh, organized, the, the organized type of demonstrations and things that were going on in the early New Deal, they're not happening. Now, what has happened is interesting, and we want to talk about this, which is that a succession of smaller elections, uh, notably that election in New York where uh, I think Representative Engel lost his seat. A number of candidates allied with uh, Sanders and, and uh, AOC and others have won elections. There's a real electoral movement inside the Democratic Party against the establishment, and I think it's fair to say that the pandemic uh, has somewhat increased its strength. There is also a powerful outside the party movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, there. Um, and the Democratic establishment has sort of tried to absorb that, basically. And, and I, I myself think that what will matter is the ability after Biden uh, if he wins, and I don't think this is a foregone conclusion, um, but if he wins, then it's going to turn into the strength of the electoral left inside the Democratic Party. Now, let's talk about what does that make for a policy problem for Biden. And if you look carefully at how they ran the convention, and particularly the discussions of fiscal and monetary policy, you can see the fault line running down there in exactly the way I'm talking. Now, before I sort of talk about this, I think I take everybody seriously. You know, the Sanders speech was very direct on this. The reasons for supporting Biden. I mean, you're basically, uh, you, yeah, democracy itself probably is uh, threatened. And, and so, you know, let's, first things first, um, from their standpoint, I think. Um, and uh, they, I think they mean it when they say they're going to strongly campaign for Biden. But, you know, the morning after, if he gets elected, um, this is going to get uh, very complicated. In the last few days, if you look closely, I was, I think, former Senator Ted Kaufman, uh, who's, I think, running the transition for Biden has always been close to him, what made some remarks about how they know the exact opposite of what Blanchard was saying. They know that they will have to sort of rein in their fiscal ambitions. Um, and that created a storm of controversy. AOC and others tweeted, and they did some backpedaling. Uh, but then also you will see how the, the main... What effectively the Biden campaign did, it's, it's not stupid. And they're also, you know, they're, they're not, 
completely unresponsive idiots either. I mean, they made some efforts to reach out um, to the uh, left Democrats, if you like. Um, but what they actually did when you look hard is they did what I like to call the Noah's Ark strategy. They were just basically putting everything in two by two. They had a whole set of committees uh, that were uh, joint with, in effect, Sanders people. Then they very plainly got another set of groups working that you know are not full of Sanders people uh, or, or others. Um, and I think I understand the mainline uh, Democratic advisors that are around Biden. And uh, this is going to be an attempt to run a center-left administration right along the lines, I think, of the Obama uh, administration. And it, you know, at one point, they even had a fundraising group, which was basically constituted by old Treasury people. Um, and I don't expect to see all those folks back. Uh, the, the famous Cheshire cat of Larry Summers. I, I think it, when you look at this quote from Blanchard, um, and I listen to Bloomberg radio a lot, and the majority of the people speaking on behalf of the finance sector are saying what Blanchard says, which is not only do they not fear the current debt levels, they're okay with higher debt levels. Um, I heard one woman who's the head of a pretty big hedge fund who says, uh, let it, let her rip, uh, just keep doing whatever it takes. There's really no limit to how far you can go. Uh, so uh, to see Biden come up with a big stimulus package, uh, it sounds like he's going to have a good significant portion of the financial sector behind him. So I, I can't see how he wouldn't do that. In fact, some of the people I'm hearing on Bloomberg are frustrated with the Republicans for not pushing through a bigger uh, a new package here. But but this isn't FDR just because you have a big stimulus package. FDR, first of all, was more or less in favor of public ownership. Uh, he certainly wanted to defend private ownership as a system. But within that, he, he did want to promote a certain amount of public ownership and said in certain critical sectors, I think he was talking about electricity, that if the electrical companies are going to hold hold people up with, with bad service and high rates, then it should be a public utility. And you could certainly apply that principle now to other sectors. Well, Biden's not talking about that. And FDR's employment program was direct employment hired through government programs. Uh, I don't hear a word about that. One can assume, I think, based on what we know of Biden and the Obama-Biden administration, that whatever they do is going to be done through the private sector. So it's a little disingenuous, I think, of Biden to be talking about a new deal as if he's on the same page as, as AOC and others that are talking about this Green New Deal. Do you, do you, what do you think of that? I do, but I want to come back to the Blanchard and others question first. Okay, now let me, I have a credential here that just about nobody else has, Paul. Back in 2008, when everybody was walking around saying Obama was the, you know, the new, going to bring you a new deal or something, I wrote a paper uh, where I'd analyzed his early funding and I said, this is all wrong. This is bringing the financial sector back to power. Lots of people have had to concede that was right. I did it back in the April or so, May. Uh, it was sufficiently toxic. I remember that one website I think I'd actually written it for took it down in Naked Capital in 2012 because I just didn't want any reference to it. So bless uh, their hearts at Naked Capitalism. Uh, Eve Smith put it back up. Um, now, look, I'm not done with the financial analysis, and I do that with a couple of colleagues, Paul Jorgensen and Ji Chen, but I can see what I, I've seen enough to know, I think, that, yeah, there are going to be a lot of financial people. But what you want to pay attention to here is what people are actually saying and the evolution of the economic theories in the last couple of years. What they usually say is, now we need to spend which is exactly what Blanchard said in that quote uh, that you uh, read me. I don't, I agree with that that's, everybody thinks that. 
watch what happens after the election. Um, plus, people realize that they have a serious problem. I mean, Blanchard got the lesson of the failure of the European Union to recover because premature austerity focused on. But behind the scenes, if you look, and I am close enough to this discussion that I am not wrong, there is an immense amount of discussion underway about how fast can you cut back and what will you do over time. In in Germany and elsewhere, this takes the form of a very low-key discussion of the debt break, which is there over because they have a couple of political parties built on order liberalism and austerity. In the U.S., that same discussion is underway now. It is not uh, and the question is going to be, you know, how bad is the situation? The war analogy is not too misleading, meaning people spend what they have to to try to win a war. Uh, and But then they, you know, will usually some kind of fiscal consolidation will cut back. That didn't destroy the U.S. economy after World War II because... They had all that pent-up savings. People were not allowed to spend all the money they'd made. Um, You know, they had them sitting there in bonds and things. They pulled them out and spent them. You're not going to see that from the bulk of the population now. They're losing their jobs, watching, looking mostly at falling wages uh, and generally wretched uh, conditions. You're, what you're actually happen, what's actually happening in, in this economy is a vast intensification of the tendencies toward a dual economy. You know, there isn't going to be any enormous release of private savings, for example, to propel the economy forward. You know, I mean, after the pandemic thing, whereas there was in World War II. So, no, I want to insist that the fiscal consolidation question is going to come up front. Now, part of the way you can see this, look at what just happened in the last 24 hours in the discussion over uh, whether possibly a Biden administration might keep Fed Chairman Powell in his job with people close to Biden saying, well, you know, he might actually do it. You can read that around in today's, um, you know, papers. Um, and this question is not going away. And, you know, there is no structural, I, it, I, I think there's no way it can go away. They simply cannot say we're going to do fiscal consolidation before, before the election. Nobody's, you know. After the election, then there'll be a question of how much do you need to spend to make sure the place doesn't fall apart. But then uh, the question of cutting back, you know, I mean, Jared Bernstein, you know, who's a perfectly reasonable being, a, a liberal Democrat, was friendly to labor, was saying, no, we know we have to sort of uh, take a look at spending. Uh, that's gotten some pushback, too. This is going to be an open sore. Um, and so I, you know, uh, I, I think people are living in la la land if they think that this, this business will continue, uh, which is of course, both a question of both fiscal and monetary policy. And here you want to watch the way the fed is able to work. Now, these people have learned they can affect financial markets just with announcements. And the fact that they're standing around, as my friend Ed Kane is always saying, knowing they're behind too big to fail banks, you know, makes banks happy and um, drives their stock up. It's not just too big to fail banks these days. It's too big to fail stock market. They just won't let the stock market fail. And if you know that and got in early enough, you made an absolute killing. Yep. No, no, I, I agree, though, I, if you notice just, just the other day and the, when they released the minutes of what I guess was the Fed Open Market Committee, you could see a slight, um, there was some discussion of whether they really needed to intervene all along the yield curve. Read that as uh, just keep doing their quantitative easing. Um, and, you know, the suggestion was, well, we probably don't need to do it now. They're, they're clearly thinking already that they might uh, have uh, overshot their hand just a touch and would like to cut back. Um, now, that's created enough anxiety that in the world financial community, 
um, as they contemplate, you know, potential spending. I mean, nobody knows how this is going to come out. Just how bad is the situation going to get? The war analogy, again, is very illuminating. You know, can you actually win this thing? I mean, it looks to me like in COVID, uh, the average white collar one uh, percenter is sort of thinking, well, you know what? This hasn't been such a terrible pandemic for us. Um but, you know, that that could change. So so what you're saying, and I think it's important that we all remind ourselves that even if Biden wins the election in November, he doesn't take power until January. Uh, Biden could actually be taking power at a time where the financial sector and, and the, the lords of uh, <laughs> the real lords of the world may be deciding, OK, enough of this stimulus just at a time Biden is promising to come in with a two trillion dollar climate package. Yeah, and I'm saying they're already thinking about it. You just can't read it in the New York Times except between the lines. I mean, they do print just enough that a smart person could put this together. But, you know, it's it's not it's not the same as the real news, Paul, to uh, use just an analogy plucked from memory. Um, but anyway, um, so, yeah, let's so let's continue uh, sort of now let's actually pick up on the green new deal business um, as well as the technology story and the sort of way that this uh, this is going to drive all kinds of problems in the United States I mean it's you know here we are in the middle of a pandemic and uh, you've got wildfires raging in in California and elsewhere and the governor I think just to declared some kind of a disaster for some of those areas. Um, and you, know, you can see pandemic problems, including drought, oh, sorry, not pandemic problems, green problems all over the place. Now, you'll, you, I think, actually mentioned to me, um, you know, there wasn't much talk of a Green New Deal. Now, this is worth uh, a little excavation. I remember when Obama came in and he went back to whatever that town was. I think it was in Kansas where Theodore Roosevelt had given some speech and he started talking about fair deals and things. He didn't want to embrace a new deal discussion. And the Democrats have just run from that label um, ever since. You know, the Green New Deal, Pelosi buried it with the uh, uh, House uh, Democrats. And it wasn't like they were full of senators rushing. It's just they, they weren't in the majority and couldn't do much anyway. Uh, there, you know, and she just, Pelosi just endorsed Joe Kennedy over Ed Markey, who makes much more sense on uh, green issues um, than um, uh, most other U.S. senators or Democrats. Um, and so, I mean, the parties. The party establishment doesn't want to do a Green New Deal. That's just obvious. They don't even like the rhetoric. Uh, it's also obvious, one, that you need some kind of a fairly drastic Green New Deal, but two, it could create a lot of jobs. I don't disagree with all, you know, Ralph, you have to, particularly if you start redoing construction to, uh, oh, sorry to sort of get into bizarre English here, to greenify uh, uh, if you like home insulation and things like that, you create a lot of jobs. Uh, not to mention restructuring the utilities, long range, long long range power transmission, um, the electrical grid, and so so forth. I mean, that, that's a substantial chunk of investment. But there's more too. Like, look, um, in this, we we know that um, the use of the internet has shifted from uh, something that, you know, might be nice for you to a life essential, particularly as these schools just can't operate. You know, we've seen all these people try to open their, for instance, in the, in the university, you know, they tried to open the University of North Carolina, had to close after a few days. Notre Dame just did it. There'll be a lot of other people discovering that. And the public school situation is a nightmare uh, where uh, you get, the most amazing uh, proposals and and all and no real national testing system or anything uh, to sort of deal with that. Now, what that is throwing is the individuals are thrown back on their ability to get to a good internet connection. Now, enormous numbers of people in the United States, uh, I guess more than half actually 
don't have really fast internet. Uh, you know, one of my problems back with the old line that the Russians were uh, depressing the black vote in Michigan uh, through the internet was that you know more than half of Detroit didn't have um, any kind of internet access except maybe on a cell phone. And I take it for granted that people working on cell phones don't sit around reading, watching you know, Russian TV or something. Um, and I mean, they just didn't. And that hasn't changed, basically. Um, you obviously now need to push, uh, not only do you have to keep the post office going into the remotest aspects of the United States and the rural areas, you need to push good internet access out there. Now, the companies won't do it. They're oligopolies. They don't want to make the investment for what a relatively low earning uh, you know, per square mile out there. I mean, you got farmhouses, not dense urban uh, clusters. Um, and then there's going to be this whole range of uh, applications and so forth that everybody's going to need or want pretty soon. Uh, this is going to supplant yet more uh, regular if you like business models, a lot, small, a lot more, a lot more small businesses are going to die. Uh, I'm sorry to say, um, and you know, people can wring their hands, but uh, and, and they can deliver speeches about how they set up that Main Street program, which never got off the ground. I looked at Rosengren from the Fed, Boston Fed, and others talking about this, and he was clearly given Mission Impossible. That one had the look of a program that was set up never to succeed to me when the uh, Congress passed it, and it has succeeded. Um, anyway, um, so uh, look, there's a huge amount you could do in a Green New Deal, you know, just internet access, make, and, and as you say, that's certainly going to require some more public muscle. Uh, I mean, nothing is going to make the major internet companies do the type and scale of investment that the population now needs and needs real fast. Uh, there, I, I'm, I should say, I take it for granted that, well, this is a bad pandemic and we can hope that they eventually get a vaccine. It's probably not going to be the last. You don't know where in whatever cave, wherever it is, something else will come out or somebody will try something. There's a lot of talk amongst the same Bloomberg radio type pundits and otherwise uh, that the sectors of finance are going to spend a lot of money trying to keep the Senate Republican because what they really want actually in the final analysis is, is, a, is more or less a gridlock. Um, what, what are the chances that finance can tip the balance of the scales on the Senate? Okay, well, now this is like, to me, this is like a fastball thrown down the middle because my colleagues and I, Paul Jorgensen and Ji Chen, we have that paper on the linear model of congressional spend, bluntly, which means that the more you spend, the more votes you get in the two-party split. And uh, we use a case, one case we looked at in detail was the 2016 Senate campaign, where with like two or three weeks to go, uh, you could see that uh, it looked hopeless. I mean, you could pick up a contract on the Republicans winning the Senate. I, I, I forget, it was incredibly low. Eight or nine uh, bucks would buy you $100 or so. And they, they spent a fortune, came in a lot of money from private equity and casinos and elsewhere, and they, they, they saved uh, the Senate. Now, that tells me that uh, my colleagues in political science who keep insisting for years that money matters just a little or not at all, which a lot, bunches of them, including a lot of economists, still continue to say, um, they, they're wrong. And so the now Biden is, I'm expecting, like in 2018, the swing in the business community against Trump, I think largely in the last few months. I mean, if, if you actually look at who backed Trump um, there, what I mean, my colleagues and I have that paper on 2016, where we looked exactly at this. And you can see basically the bulk of the business community, the big business, mostly liked Hillary Clinton. 
Uh, the big exceptions are casinos, private equity, and later in the during the campaign itself, some banks they love deregulation. They started pitching in. There were a few folks from Silicon. There weren't many. Uh, and then a huge chunk of the business community really liked what Trump did. There, I, I, I knew one major woman business figure in the Northeast who delivered a tirade in a group I was in about how Trump's remarks on women and, you know, the other stuff on race were horrible. Then asked, somebody asked, well, are you going to vote for me? Oh, yeah, well, the Yes, was the answer. The policies are so wonderful. The COVID debacle, where, I mean, they, the nicest thing you can say about the White House is this has been heavily political and often almost deranged in, in the way they shift lines back and forth each week uh, on on nearly everything and the unwillingness to do even the simplest sort of coordination. Um it's cost him heavily. So we're coming back to where we were uh, in 2016. That is to say, we're a bulk of business, a big business, I think, is going to vote, hold their nose and vote for Biden. Um, and we'll back them up. So I don't think you're going to see the Democrats lacking for cash. Can the Republicans raise a lot of money from a few sectors? Well, they did that in 2016 in the final stages. Uh that's one among the many reasons that I'm not prepared to say that anything is in the bag. Though, if you ask me, if, you, if I push to it, I'll say the most likely outcome, I think, is that the Democrats probably win everything just barely in the Senate, uh, but even in the White House. But boy, is that not a certain outcome. But just getting the Democrats in control of the Senate doesn't necessarily guarantee everything either because so much of the Democratic senators are uh, so fiscally and otherwise right of center themselves. That, that's exactly right. I mean, no, this is, look, now this is where you go back to the real New Deal, if I may for a second, and sort of see what happened there, which is that effectively nobody in the Democratic Party was feeling very radical, though there a lot of financial houses wanted major changes in uh, financial legislation. I've written a lot about that. That's the origins of the Glass-Steagall. I mean, Averill Harriman was actually at that point even in the administration. Um, and um, he was, um, he and lots of other people in investment banking wanted you know, the separation of investment from commercial banking. But now, okay, so we get to late 1934, and the National Recovery Act is not succeeding. Um, basically, the economy is stalled out, it didn't plunge, but it, uh, they were doing a very, very slow introduction of uh, more public spending, and they didn't really believe it themselves. And in the end, they never really did it, though for a couple of years, from 35 to 36, they did. And famously, they cut back um, and brought on a, a recession. But now here's the point. What actually forced the second New Deal? And the answer is, you know, partly it was the right-wing opposition dug in in the Supreme Court um, there and throughout, like, the NRA, but also, you began to see really large waves of strikes. Now, very famously, the American Federation of Labor had been sitting on its tail most of the uh, Depression. Uh, they weren't doing very much. They'd even get asked to help organize, but they didn't do it. Um, and finally, what you found is that some parts of um, the labor movement in the inductive were a few unions that were organizing or trying to, industries mostly, broke off from the AFL. And, you know, famously, uh, John L. Lewis, you know, w walked out of the convention having socked the head of the AFL, uh, I think, in the jaw, and they began to organize. The labor movement hasn't done much recently. I think they have not exploited this, particularly on the areas of worker safety. I mean, I, there are some unions and some movements in it that have done tried to do a lot. But uh, my sense is you could do a lot more. 
Um, you're going to need to sort of get a serious effort to organize more people. And that's going to have to feed into the electoral left. Uh, because that ability to throw people out of their seats is what's going to move the more conservative Democrats. It's really vital. If that is finally going to settle the whole business, this movement of the justice Democrats that the uh, National Democratic uh, Committees just hate. This is the campaign to elect progressive uh, yes. Democrats and, and, and defeat the right conservative right-wing Democrats in primaries. Yeah. They, uh, they, uh, the striking thing is, is that the Democratic National Committee and its uh, allies in the in, in Congress uh, were all, you know, yelling at uh, Justice Democrats for trying to defeat um, right-wing Democrats. This didn't block Nancy Pelosi from try- coming in to endorse Joe Kennedy against um, Ed Markey, and it's like. Yeah, these guys basically make the rules the way they want them. Uh, and, I mean, the, the, the other side of this is you got people like Richard Neal, who doesn't get much publicity, who's been among those, along with Pelosi and others, just sitting on Medicare for all. They just have just blocking. Now, you know, if there's one piece of legislation that common sense says getting, breaking the connection between employment and uh, medical coverage has been shown to be very, very important, and capping the possibility of, you know, of effectively economic life-threatening charges. You should be able to go into any hospital in the United States and not have to find out if your anesthesiologist is uh, on your plan or not at the last second. I mean, they could have fixed this. In Obamacare, they didn't. They and the Democrats have just sat on their hands on this uh, since then. A whole bunch of us said then and now, uh, this is unconscionable. I mean, my my sense is this is a really powerful idea, and it really is an idea whose time has come. S- sum this up. So let's assume, for the sake of argument. Uh, your cautious prediction is right. The Dems narrowly get control of the Senate, obviously keep control of the House, and Biden is president. Uh, but it's not till January, and he's going to be facing, as you said, a far stronger banking financial sector than FDR faced. Certainly they fought FDR, but they were, as you say, a lot weaker then than they are now. In fact, nothing's ever been as powerful as the American finance sector is now. Um, He's got to deal uh, with uh, the progressive sector of the Democratic Party. On the other hand, he's unlikely to have to face them again. He's not likely to run for a second term. So he doesn't have to worry about his own electoral fortunes very much, which I suppose could play both ways in the sense that he could actually try to do something which is uncharacteristic of him which is not be pragmatic about his own political career and actually do what's needed. But so far, it's just rhetoric. Um, So for people, you know, who are organizing, who are trying to develop a mass movement in the United States, uh, it seems like a lot of the onus is going to be on them because the pressures on Biden to be another Obama administration are going to be very strong. That's right. These are the pe- almost the same people that brought you the the Obama administration, which you know led directly to the 2010 wipeout that made so greatly intensified the sort of uh, if you like right wing free market control of policy, um, and eventually led to Trump in uh, the the. Um, yeah, that's uh, yeah. what can I say? I guess my usual sign-off line uh, is: uh, if you want a happy ending, see a Disney movie. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, look, I, this is a problem. On the other hand, Bernie Sanders was right the other night when he said, "Just look at how far they have come from where they were." I mean, now Medicare for all. I mean, look, I'm living in the middle of a congressional district where you've got eight or ten folks running around and a number, not one of them, but three or four of them are walking around saying, well, Medicare for all is really pretty obvious. 
Um, and yeah, it really is obvious. You know, if you're not on somebody's payroll, you know it's obvious. Um, and the, it's not as though the problems are going away. I mean, it, it, I think we, we were close to a uh, very full employment, not full, we hadn't reached there, you know, in the final uh, months before the pandemic. I mean, they've gone, the, the economy had, had, had more people at work than most everybody thought were possible. And they had, I mean, all the stuff about the old so-called Phillips curve relationships and stuff like that, they were all seeing, even central bankers were noticing, that just didn't hold any water. Um, that stuff is, you know, if you actually could stabilize the economy, which it's, it's not now, um, this question will come back. And the question of what are you going to do with the great masses of the population, and particularly with, you know, Black and Hispanic families very heavily hit hard by uh, the coronavirus. You know, I mean, the, where are we? Uh, where are we going to be? I I think there are. Uh, I I have a feeling that if you were to rerun the Democratic primary now, uh, Joe Biden probably wouldn't sweep the South. Uh, um, uh, but I could be wrong about that. We're all, I'm, I'm sorry to say, we're all going to find out. So thanks for joining us, Tom. Thanks, Paul. Glad to uh, talk again sometime. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. <laughs>